Welcome back, everyone, to episode two of season two of Coffeehouse Blunders. That's right. We are breaking down every single episode of The Queen's Gamut, the international hit sensation from Netflix, and has been sparking chess to unbelievable heights. It's ridiculous. I just saw it on the news the other day. I was tweeting articles to you. Um, I'm James Montemagno, and this person that I keep saying is you is my best friend in my entire world, <laughs> international chess master Danny Wrench. How's it going, buddy? We, we should have just kept that going. And uh, you, you did send me the article. And I just told you before we went live here that yesterday on chess.com, we had more than 8 million live games completed for the first time ever. And that's, uh, we don't, we're not going to be talking about that today, but I just had to say that because you're right. The uh, It's been wild. We're more than a month now since Queen's Gambit has been live on Netflix, if not even, not even more, actually, I think closer to a month and a half. And it's, uh, it's still crazy and all the talk and, and people are loving it. It's re-inspiring and re-engaging people's old love of chess and bringing new people to the game. And uh, this podcast is is so much fun. I enjoyed last week so much, James. And this week, you and I both rewatched it. We took notes. I can't wait to dive in on, into all that is exchanges episode two. That is correct. Yeah, I, I am ecstatic. I have seven pages of notes. I tweeted it out earlier. <laughs> so I did not create seven pages. So you will forgive me for that. But I think I've seen it more than you. And maybe that led to less notes this time. Anyway, but I can't wait. I can't wait for seven pages of notes. That's good. Yeah, I'm, I'm really I'm really excited about this. And we've already been discussing a little bit. But if you're new to the podcast, stop now and go back to the first episode in season one, which is um, openings, which is we are breaking down every single episode of The Queen's Gambit with no spoilers for future episodes. So if you are watching with us, welcome. You're going to love this because um, we're breaking down not only the show, but more importantly, the chess. While I am not a chess grandmaster, international master, national master, or master of any sorts, <laughs> uh, I am a programmer by day. Batman by night. You keep forgetting to say that. Batman by night. Go ahead. Sorry. Batman by night. That's correct. Um, Danny over here, you may know him um, from chess.com, you know, and on Twitch, he's an international master and he has been really just holding the weight over here of explaining the, 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 the pieces behind, you know, the moves behind the pieces, if you will, right. <laughs> um, that Beth has been making every single stop along the way, but we are, you know, commenting. I think what's important is on the era, right? You were talking about this right. in the first episode, right. you know, we're in the the fifties and sixties. We're moving along uh, in this, and is the chess realistic? Is it not realistic? And I think after doing the first episode of the podcast with you last week and watching episode two again, I think I'm now looking at everything different. By the mm. way, like I am thinking about why um, you know different moves are made this way, how her thinking is, you know, just in. In general, because I'm learning a lot, and I think that's why right. we're doing this podcast too. Well, and I, I don't want to say too. Yeah, you you talked about all the chess we're gonna get gonna get into, but for those who haven't watched or listened to episode one, uh, now we're gonna assume you've done that, so you'll know that we're also talking about the era and all the different things that you know would be going on in the '60s, and there's things that uh, a young woman would be experiencing, maybe both in the chess community and not. I mean, I think I I had some takeaways from episode two where they really start to kind of. Um, you know, plant the seed of, of some of the things that Beth observes about, about, um, you know, the a relationship, right. That she's adopted into men and women in general and her place in the world and how that's going to fit and the struggles that that actually ends up bringing to not just her life, but also on the chessboard. And uh, me watching episode, episode two, excuse me again, last night had me taking away again, just what a great job they did of storytelling and developing the character of Beth, both on and off the chessboard, especially as someone who, 
has taught so much chess forever. And now, you know, I do what I do at chess.com and, and teach chess on kind of like a larger scale with shows and videos. But I say often that chess is so much psychology. And I've had so much experience with recognizing that someone's approach to things in their character, like their personality is reflected on the board in terms of their strengths and weaknesses. And I can't say enough how much I feel they did that. And so now James' job is to hold me back and make sure I don't talk about things future in the show. We just focus episode two and, and all the things there. But I think we already start to see so much of that. And, and I can't wait to get into it. Yeah. And before we do, we encourage everybody to give us feedback on your thoughts on episode one. We posted the episode not only on your favorite podcast application. You can go to blunders.fm, comment on the episode, or rent us an email. It's also on Danny's YouTube as well. So if you prefer to get your podcast via YouTube, um, they're there as well. And Danny, I believe you have a kind of really awesome comment. Yeah, a comment, a comment from the commenter as well. A, co- a comment from the commenter. Uh, for, I'm gonna I'm gonna read one very quick one first from Julian Andrews, who said, "Finally, with an exclamation point." I think he was talking about our podcast coming back or maybe that someone's doing a podcast on uh, on the queen's gambit so thank you for the finally exclamation point julian but then he says did i think that her finding the ready tart to cower tactic which is the one she found um against the uh the coach from the high school mr um mr gaines Ga- uh yeah mr gaines, gaines. the ready tart to cower queen sack a bit unrealistic well i i don't know i mean the the story is designed to 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 highlight her her kind of tactical and and uh, just you know, her brilliant level of focus and uh, the fact that it's done in a way that pays homage to Ready Tartikauer as as an amazing way to finish off a chess game is kind of what I focused on, whether it was realistic or not. We'll get into, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to say that, Julian, if you just heard your comment read out loud, we're going to get into some of the realistic moments and even more of the specifics of the chess in this episode, specifically as we get to the end and talk about her match with Mr. Beltic at the end of the Kentucky State Championship. So we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. I don't know that it's so important as much that they nailed the chess and it is a brilliant game from a very famous position, Um, but maybe you're not totally wrong. The main comment we want to read, though, is from Dialects Junkie, who says, one thing I'd say is that in chess, uh, why can't I read? Pedagogy? What is that? Pedagogy. Pedagogy. Why can't I read that word? Pedagogy. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) It usually isn't the best idea to start teaching beginners, even talented ones, openings, especially to go so deeply into variations, such as the Levenfish, which I believe is a very quite is a quite specific line and an already specific line, which is the Sicilian Dragon. It's better to start with end games and tactics, maybe more advanced middle game positional ideas if the student is really talented. So he's one hundred percent right, and maybe not super relevant, but because this is a chess kind of breakdown of an amazing chess show, I'm just going to give credit where credit's due. He's not wrong at all, and and even though this comes with a slight spoiler, I already already promised James it's not a spoiler in any way that any of you who maybe haven't seen episode six and seven are going to be mad at me. He comments to his own comment and says, and in fact, in the later matches when we know Beth is playing for a lot of stakes, which I won't get into. The announcer even mentions that Beth is very strong in the opening and early middle game, but relatively weaker in the end game and later portions. He's not wrong at all. In fact, it's such an insightful comment that um, had to bring it up. Now, I don't know that it's super relevant to uh, to the fact that you know this is a show about a chess prodigy, whatever. But it, it is kind of interesting to point out that some of Beth's, again, like character weaknesses on the board are sort of foreshadowed early on with the chess that they show and this sort of over focus on the opening. And again, this is just super interesting. Chess has never been covered like this. So the golden standard that we're calling the the Queen's Gambit on Netflix goes beyond 
the X's and O's of like, yes, the board was set up, James. Yes, they did some cool tactics. But this is like really actually super well done, right? To describe uh, someone's weaknesses when they become this great player as maybe something that was kind of like planted on very early on in terms of the way she was taught and exposed to the game. So anyway, super cool comment. Thank you, Dialects Junkie. And hopefully everyone continues to read more now that you know that we we will actually engage with you and read them. Yeah, I think it's a good point too. And in fact, in this episode, when we get to the, you know, Baltic and the Towns matches later on towards the end of the podcast, it's fascinating because I think she feels very, you can tell that there's a poise, there's a calmness in the opening of these matches, but somewhere around three fourths the way in to these matches, she, you know, she has her head um, down with her, with her, with her, you know, knuckles to her face. And she's really thinking about it and she's really getting in. And no, no, you normally do that when you're playing a chess match, but compared to her, compared to towns and compared to Beltic, they're sort of right. the same the entire time, you know, Beltic at some point he's like, he knows he sees it. Right. But you right. can, you can tell she has to sort of put a lot more energy into those, to those end games, uh, even though she's able to do it. And, you know, when we open up the episode, funnily enough, talking about openings, is they talk about the Sicilian defense yet again. She's talking about that there's 57 pages of on the Sicilian defense and 170 lines P to QB4. I don't know what that means, Danny. Can, right. you, please, can you please decrypt so, what she's talking about in the uh, the openings book? P to QB4 is pawn to queen's bishop four, which is the Sicilian. Okay. Um, and uh, we, we talked about a lot of this uh, last episode or, or maybe we I think we talked many times that we would get into the, the the description of descriptive notation which is what that is so if you play on on chess.com or any chess website or read any sort of modern book you're going to see algebraic notation which is the board sort of turned into a graph right you have the numbers one mm-hmm. through eight on the bottom and you have letters a through h aligning the the side and so a move is just described as pawn to e4 or pawn to c5 in the case of the Sicilian Pawns to descriptive is is a notation that was invented and allows you to describe the moves without without looking at a board that has the algebraic numbers added the the, the numbers or the letters right so it's actually very cool because it's sort of a a self defining way to have uh, to give every move an address right and, and a charting so pawn to queen's bishop four would mean as black you start with your queen you move to your queen's bishop and the pawn moves up to the fourth rank pawn to queen's bishop four um and that is the sicilian and again they do such a good job because they didn't they didn't even screw up things like that and have her say they could have had her say something random like pawn to queen's rook three right which would be a random move like a6 and people would say that's not an opening in modern chess right they not only did they get it right that it was an opening with c5 meaning pawn to queen's bishop four but it's the sicilian which we all know is the opening she's obsessed with and it's the homage directly to her chess personalities which is foreshadowed so many times that the series is being related to bobby fisher who who was a huge proponent of the sicilian got it got it yeah i just you know those things we had talked about it a little bit in the past and i think it's a good reminder is there's a lot of ways to navigate the chessboard, and they do that really elegantly throughout the entire series. Um, and this is really fascinating. They open up, and then they jump six years. We were in 1957. They jump six years to 1963, and at the end of the first episode and openings, you know, Beth is grabbing, <laughs> grabbing tranquilizers by the fistful and shoving in her mouth as as she's uh, you know her addiction has begun of these things. But she's been punished. She's been punished and she hasn't been able to play chess. Now, we don't know if she hasn't been able to play chess for the full six years. But I want to say 
Yes. <laughs> you know, yeah. I think so. Um, you know, she had just turned 15. Uh, and I guess, you know, what, what, what does that do when you are taken away from chess, right? She is just getting started. She's just there. What should it do? I mean, she, I think she proved a lot of things wrong in this episode. Um, but what can that do to a chess player or, or someone that you're teaching when they step away from chess for, for years at a time? So I'm so fascinated by that idea because I was thinking about this during the show and was like, especially last night, I was like, do I really believe someone could have, you know, that kind of talent and not play the game for so long and then eventually kind of rekindle it and find the levels that she did? And I actually came to the conclusion, yes, I don't think that that's I think it's it's a sad story for someone to have found something they're so brilliant at. And what I started taking away was, oh, my gosh. How good could she have been mm -hmm. if she found chess and they didn't punish her and take it away for six years or if she was in a stable family? Like my, my chess coaching brain was like I was sitting there talking with Shauna last night. We were watching it and I was like, man, if some of the most talented kids that I had, like, you know, didn't get taken away from chess, you start imagine how could they how could they have been meeting kids I taught, not 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 uh, kids we've had. That's a different story. Never mind. I don't know where I'm going with this part of the show, but um, the the. Uh, the point is, I think if someone has a real aptitude for something, um, there are fundamentals that maybe like, you know, go away or you don't get instilled because you didn't learn it when you were younger, which we kind of see happen with Beth later on, both in terms of her her issues as a person and on the board. But I think I think that they do a really good job of showing she found the game, clearly showed an aptitude, left it, but the passion never left. You know, she's begging Mr. Scheibel. We see when she is moving and gets adopted, she's looking for her MCO book, you know, the Modern Chess Openings, which at this point we could assume she's probably read in her head a million times, right? It was the one thing that they couldn't take from her when she was forbidden to play. And I was like, you know what? Um, I don't think that it's unrealistic that she, that she, you know, would still have a love for something like that and find it. And there are, you know, even guys like Yasser Sarawan to make a correlation to someone who, has a similar story. Yasser did not become a world champion, but for those who don't know Yaz for anything other than, you know, his appearances on the Chess Bras show on Twitch, Yaz was at some point, I think, number three in the world. And, and Yaz basically quit the game also throughout his whole adolescence and then committed to it as a roughly 17, 1800 strength player in his late teens, which is kind of where you would think, well, Beth was already better than that, um, maybe, but but kind of where you might think she was at. And and Yaz eventually became one of the world's elite. So, um, you know, it's hard to say whether people can become a grandmaster if they decide to pick up chess when they're 40. But I do think that, um, you know, it's not unrealistic that she would lose her love for the game and that she could still get really good, despite how cruel and unusual that six-year ban was. It's like riding a bike. At least she was young. It's a course that you can get back on it. You know the basics, but I think she did have that crutch, right? She had that MCO book that you're right. I bet that she read every single day over and over again, studied that, you know, Sicilian defense nonstop. So we see that, you know, she jumps right back in, right back into it really quick because, um, the show had to go on in some way. And she was adopted at 15 by Mr. And Mrs. Wheatley. And can we just stop here and say that Alston, uh, Mr. Wheatley, is the worst. Like he's just the worst, at least in this episode. I don't, in future episodes that I know of that I've watched so far. Um, he's just kind of the worst. And I, so and I, it's very upsetting. The, the, the worst person, the worst dad, the worst role model, the worst thing that would like, you know, like for Beth to like observe how he treats, you know, the, uh, mm -hmm. the woman who, you know, becomes her mother, right. Who she, you know, 
clearly clearly learns to love it's it's really heartbreaking i watched that with shauna and i was like it's like the scene where he's going to the car and it's like every horrible thing you could ever say to like a human being let alone your wife right and i i really i the reason i I wanted to bring that up is obviously it's like not something you want to talk about but it's it really there's a reason they have it in the show right and so like i wonder what your takeaway was from it to me i took it as there was a very early sort of establishment that you know, Beth has come from this horrible trauma where we already know she lost her mother at this point in the show. We don't even really know where the dad is. Whatever her thoughts are about what a stable family might bring kind of get pretty much crashed right away when she sees, you know, him treating his wife that way. Right. And I and I think that there's a part of Beth that, as we know throughout the whole show, without spoilers, we know that this is going to be a character, you know, growing and going through a lot of stuff as she deals with like her issues and becomes a, a, a great chess player. And I just think that there was like a foreshadowing of how she was going to view the need for relationships and not like established right then and there in terms of why would she ever want something like that for herself? And again, I don't want to get into foreshadowing where things go with the different relationships that Beth has, but what was your takeaway of why they had that in such a clear way in the show? Yeah, to me, Elisa really just cemented the fact that, you know, she is clearly kind of on her own in a weird way that she is not going to have a, a, f- a father figure in her life. Right. Why Mr. Scheibel like was for a very short time. It was very different, right? Um, in this regard, she's grown a lot since she was a kid. And since her mom passed, there's a lot of symmetry between um, Mrs. Wheatley and her mom with the, you know, addiction to kind of drugs, these tranquilizers, the happy pills, if you will. But at the same time, I think that she's grown to say that to, to at least think that she can form a relationship and find out what is the motivation of Mrs. Wheatley and how can she form that? And that's what we start to see in this, which is there is something that Mrs. Wheatley can clearly give and, 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 and for her to obviously keep her in the house and keep doing what she wants to do. But Mrs. Wheatley also has a motivation. So I mean, in some odd way, she kind of saves Mrs. Wheatley, you know, going into right. especially the next episode. But you start to see some of that in this episode. But to me, it just it was like, hey, if if Beth is going to do something, there's not a, a clear support system and she's going to have to do it on her own, just like she's been teaching herself chess on her own. Right. She's not going to have right. that that father figure in her life. So it's sad. I mean, and maybe it's just something that's going to you know re put it in her mind over and over again for better or worse. Now, let's talk really quick about this house. I love this house, Danny. <laughs> this wallpaper in this house I'm, is fantastic. I, I, I'm so glad you're being sarcastic, right? Um, no, I love it. I love everybody. Oh, my I, God, dude. No, I, Sean and I talked about I hate. I'm like looking at the house. I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. This is my nightmare. <laughs> the, this is this used to be a thing, James, and I don't want you to bring it back. Okay? No. It's, I, I don't want it for myself, Danny. Okay. I can just really appreciate that every single room had different wallpaper. Everything was super colorful. I love the the furniture in the house. I love the TV. I love there's this huge piano. I, but I was just like, every time they walk into a different room, I'm enthralled by the wallpaper and the design. It's just <laughs> right. so beautiful. I love it. I love this house. I'm and you know, finally she has her 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 place. She goes to school. I mean, we start to progress through this. There's less chess of this episode. And yet more chess in a weird way here. But the one thing I want to talk about, she goes to school, you know, not only is Mr. Wheatley the worst, I have that written down four times on a single. Mr. Wheatley is the worst. Worst. Mr. Wheatley is the worst. worst. (laughs) Yep. Side kiss on cheek. Mr. Mr. Wheatley is the worst. Um, 
you know, she gets picked on. Kids are the worst. That that is right. a continued trend. You know, uh-huh. all my life I was I was picked on quite a bit as a kid. And that that age is the worst for kids. You know, it's like dealing with insecurities and not finding yourself by constantly looking to bully someone else. You know, it's like it's just middle school and high school are just the absolute worst ages in the world. No, they're the worst. And, um, you know, in fact, the school that she goes to, there's really not a lot of support. She sits down at the lunch table and she asks the one girl across from her if there's a chess club. She has like no idea about anything. Right. There's all these social clubs. The question I had here, though, is, you know, I think it, when I went to school in I, was, I went to school in Mississippi for a year, I think we actually did have like a high school chess club that I went to, but it wasn't like an ongoing thing. It was just kind of sporadic. Did you have a did you have a chess club in school? Are these common? Are they becoming more common in any way? So, uh, first of all, in regards to that era, I think it would be okay. I, this is an area where I, you know, may not be super qualified to comment on as far as chess clubs specifically in the '60s, '70s. But I can say that most likely it would have been super rare, especially if you know, sort of this parallel timeline that the show has to those who really know how chess boomed in America. Mots, we talked about this, right? Like the idea that she's kind of based on Fisher in a way. And Fisher mm-hmm. was finding himself and preparing to take on the world champions in in the late 60s and early 70s, where he ultimately defeated Spassky in 72. So what I'm getting to with that whole story is that the boom of chess in the U.S., frankly, unlike anything we've ever seen since, since the Queen's Gambit, which we're talking about right now, um, happened after 72. And I would say before that time, because of Fisher's success of, you know, against the Soviet Union and all the things that he became in regards to like a national hero during the Cold War, there were I, I would I would be hard pressed to imagine there are very many chess clubs at all. Now, it's possible that high school might have some because high school, you know, as kids get older, sometimes there are more sort of like student run things versus they always have to be staff run. Right. But I will say for sure, chess clubs for like elementary kids and junior high kids would have been super rare, if at all. It would have been in wealthier schools, almost probably only private schools. And, and and it really didn't, it really wouldn't have been a thing. Maybe a high school could be realistic to believe that there was a chess club. But by the way, what did the friend say? She said no, right? Yeah. So yeah. So wait, as I go on and on about it, actually, I think it's very accurate that there was no chess club. And and the, the, then the girl immediately starts pushing her toward, what is it, like cheerleading club or something like that? Yeah. And she kind of yeah. does the typical roll her eyes thing. So so as I described that, I think that's actually a very, very accurate way that the, that that should have been answered there. You know, well, let's talk, let's talk about the air. Cause I want to, I want to kind of double click on that, which is, you know, we're in the sixties chess is there and there's, it, it's around, right? We're, we're not quite there. We're early sixties, right? We're not in the 60s, 70 era that you're talking about yet. And her and Mrs. Wheatley, they do finally get some new clothes for her. They go to Ben Snyder, by the way, a legit Kentucky chain from 1982 to 1993. Did you look that up? Yes. You are um, so adorable. One of the reasons I love you so much. <laughs> they, were, they were sold in like 83 or something like or Okay. In, I in also 80, made note yeah. of something very specific when we get to it. I'm waiting for you to say it, but okay. I just, I just want to okay. say, I also took some notes. Go ahead. Good. You did take some, I've, been do, I've been doing a lot of research and wait until you get to some of these chess review magazines. I'm excited about that. But she goes shopping and talking about like, just, Hey, how realistic are there's chess clubs that are propagating in 1963, you know, she goes into bed center and, and there's a huge chess display, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is kind of funny because to me, it reminded me of like going into like a, you know, uh, going into like a Sears and trying to go to the video game section, like where's all the Nintendo stuff I'm, right, you know, right. in the 90s. But are we at the point where like a Ben Snyder, which is a JCPenney-esque type store, would have a huge dedicated chess section 
you know, I mean, dedicated probably there. not. Right. I mean, neither one of us can really comment on that, but yeah, I, I would, I would guess that that's, I think, I feel like you're right. Maybe that could have been a little more realistic if chess was a part of several other games on display, but you're right. It does make it like, it's a lot of chess. Like you see the little chess set, the little like magnet one on the thing. Then you see the bigger one. And then I know there's at least one more. So I think that it's, it's possible that really that should have been a, you know, a more of like a general game section and she, she spots the chess set, but I think we'll let him, we'll let him have a pass on that. But yeah. Yeah. And so she doesn't get the chess set because she doesn't have any money. She's going to get an allowance, which is very exciting. Although we realize soon that she will not need set allowance. Um, but she's, she's, she's thirsty for chess, right? And there's a, there's a fascinating part where she goes into the library at the school and asks for any chess books. This is kind of a, tr- a trend in the very beginning of this episode. Can't, is, can't wait for this. You're going to love my notes on this. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm excited. And the trend here is that she keeps asking for chess. She, there's a need. There's this desire, right? She just wasn't able to play it, but it never left her soul. So the librarian says, oh, it might be over in that corner, tucked over there, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Um, there might be something from uh, Jose Capablanca. And she goes, who's that? And the librarian, you know, says, oh, he's a GM, you know, a grandmaster, all this stuff. I don't understand why she didn't stop and immediately pick the brain of this librarian. Dana, right. Because obviously who, she knew. Who is this librarian? <laughs> yeah, who is this librarian? <laughs> right. That's so funny. It's like, uh, you just reminded me of the movie, uh, what is it, Thank You for Smoking, where there's like this funny scene, they're debating whether you could smoke on an alien spaceship. And he's like, yeah, like that's not possible with like the way space and air will work. He's no, 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 you just have some random character say like, yeah, thank God we invented the thingamajig. And then everyone <laughs> just accepts it. Right, random character insertion of a very important critical momentum timeline for the story. Anyway, um, so I, here's what I made notes of, because I immediately, uh, I immediately, here, here's what I know about knowing chess is that the international governing body of the game mentioned them many times and they chose FIDE, right? Fidelis Internacion des Eches, which is the International Chess Federation, did not establish the rewarding of the titles Grandmaster and International Master until the year 1950. So this mm-hmm. right here is actually one of the few mistakes they make in the entire series. Now, it, in a way, it's not actually a mistake because Jose Raul Capablanca, he's normally referred to as Jose Raul Capablanca, was, a world, was the world champion. Mm-hmm. which is really what I think they should have said. I think they should have said like, well, he was the world champion in 1921 or whatever, right? They should have said that. And a grandmaster title didn't exist for a lot of the early people who you like to think of as grandmasters like Paul Morphy or Capablanca mm-hmm. or, or Al Johan, right? It didn't exist till the 50s. Now, we'll give them a pass because even in the chess world, often we would refer to like, Al Johan or Morphy, these guys as like grandmaster, like they were the grandmasters of their era, even though actually that's inaccurate. There were no international or grandmaster awarded titles until the 50s. So just fun fact, I looked that up. It actually was 1950 when FIDE started rewarding those titles. Um, But yes, about the librarian, you're right. And she does somehow know that Jose Capablanca was a great player. Um, But I would have gone with the, well, like, honey, don't you know, he was the world champion, right? Then you pick her brain. Right. So anyway, that's just a fun little little factoid in terms of the timeline of stuff. Yeah. And she does find the book. It's called My Chess Career, which was originally published in 1920. Um, don't be fooled when you go and Google this. It'll say it's published in 1966. Um, that, that's actually not correct. It was reprinted then. There's many reprints of his of, of the book, um, but it was the book. I couldn't I couldn't really decipher. I'm assuming they got the original, but I can't really dis- distinguish 
when it was put out. So when I put this up, I was like, oh no, they they really messed up because this wasn't there. Right. But you're right. From 1921 to 1927, uh, Jose Ro Capablanco was the world champion. But yeah, I'm really surprised that this librarian, now of course, at least in this episode, never again do we see her. Um, right. And I, I'm like, which is crazy because when you think of the era, this is 40 years earlier and this librarian looked like maybe 40 ish, 40, 50 ish right. time. I mean, 40, I mean, young, right? So not, not your typical old Miss Fields. Sorry. She was my librarian. I love you, Miss Fields. That's not nothing wrong with that. <laughs> but, but you're right. Right. And, and that, that's what really surprised me, but Beth cannot be bothered. She's off to go find the chess books and go. Now I will tell you this much though. I found a little, and I found another inaccuracy inside of this. Are you ready for this? I don't even think you're going to, you're even going to get this. Okay. I can't wait. So she goes and, um, for Mrs. Wheatley, she goes and picks up cigarettes, uh, for her and she goes to the pharmacy. My favorite part is that, um, Mrs. Wheatley just writes a note that says, yeah, she, this 15 year old can pick up the cigarettes. That's what a time, right. what a time. In I, the 1960s. First of all, I, I made a note of that cause I thought it was hilarious and awesome. And what a time to be alive. <laughs> what a time, what a time to be alive. So she sees chess review, September, September, 1963, chess review i searched for 30 40 minutes i could not find this cover to, to to reference it that being said i found november i found august i found september i found everything except for september of of this year 1963 i was on ebay i was on the google searches i was on all the things i couldn't find this year to see if the covers match but i'm assuming they did it right now two inaccuracies on the chess review magazine itself. And I'm just going to, this isn't about the chess, but it's about the, it's so close, right? Chess review magazine always prints the month and the year. Oh my gosh. You really did do, I, this is amazing. If I could eat popcorn right now, I would. <laughs> this chess review did not have the year on it, Danny. It just said September in a different font and location than where it should be. Just a few pixels off, I will say, but here's the gotcha. Are you ready for this? Okay. So this chess review says in the bottom left 50 cents do you know how much chess review cost in 1963 oh dear god no but i'm you're gonna tell me <laughs> 60 cents danny 60 cents <gasps> what mm -hmm. oh my god first of all this is amazing i mean does a golf clap hurt our, our podcast microphone i hope not because i just gave you one. that's incredible i feel like i put you through a test right and you went full you know barbershop quartet, right? You know, Kevin Spacey, usual suspects. You're like finding things that no one else is looking at. I love it. Um, I I was going to sit here and say how great Chess Review as a reference was because it was a real magazine. Mm -hmm. And when she opened it up, I, I was paying very close attention to things. They actually, she actually shows the Hans Kamak book, Palm Power and Chess. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you, you caught that. That's caught actually that. a very... Famous and one of my favorite books of all time. So if those listening to the show are looking for a, a book that's one of Danny's, I think it makes my, maybe not top 10, but top 15 as a book that, a very unique book um, and a very, a very uh, original way that he approached talking about pawn structure weaknesses and how to kind of spot positional weaknesses, kind of the forest through the trees for chess players. And um, anyway, that was a great, just like quick reference. I was like, oh, wow, Hans Kamak, Palm Power and Chess. But wow, okay, so you you really you really busted their uh, their patooties there on that, James. I love that. Uh, yeah, I I had to break it down in some way, and, and I did I did I, I went through and I was trying to look at all the pages. So on on the 
on the so let's talk about the the pawn stuff first. I did notice that she stopped directly on a board position. It said position nine, position after nine, P Q N four. Um, and I'm assuming that's a reference to what you were Queen's just saying. Knight, Queen's Knight Four. Queen's Knight Four. Um, which was which was fascinating. I didn't get a lot of time to investigate that. But on the front of the magazine, it said board one US team. And I'm assuming that was a reference to the photo on the cover. Right. And there was a big insert on the USSR chess championship that was apparently happening in 1963. Is this the thing that really happened in 1963? The USSR championship is still today one of the okay, now it's the the Russian super final. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, it's happening in December coming up. And we've had some scheduling difficulties because Vladislav Artemyev is playing Magnus Carlsen in our speech mm-hmm. chess championship. And that has led to difficulties in terms of finding a day that works for both those players. <gasps> okay. And it's been a stress point, but I did work it out. They're playing on December 3rd. If this podcast comes out before then, which they probably will. Um, uh, yes, it is still a thing. And uh, being a winning a USSR championship was one of the hardest things in the world to do. Remember the Soviet union at this time is not only often the the country of the world champion but also like the world number two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven and top 25 players in the world like no joke the Mm. soviet union was so dominant and so um it was more than russia then right it would and um winning a ussr championship was something that often at times you could argue some of the best players in the world didn't always get the chance to compete for the world title because there was also a lot of a lot of politics and a lot of um historically I won't get into all the conspiracy theories now, but there were historically reasons why Russia wanted certain people to be or sorry, the Soviet Union wanted certain people to win and not others. And sometimes that has led to stories where, you know, people feel like some of the best chess players in Russia, some of the most talented minds, really got to be who they were themselves instead of like instead of not being themselves in the USSR championship. Mm-hmm. Um, and you think of guys like uh, Leonid Stein. Leonid Stein is one of the most talented guys to ever play the game, won multiple uh, USSR championships and never really um, he died young, but also never got a chance at the title. Uh, anyway, so, yes, not only was it a thing, but it was a probably the most prestigious event um, to play in and win of the era. Oh, wow. Wow. So they they had that totally right. And they did. They do make some references to to uh russian players i think later on in the episode not in this episode but i think in the i think in this episode and in the next episode they do pretty heavily so some you know they they do a lot of correlation where they show something early on they bring it back a little bit later yep. um yep. but i thought this was a great nod i love that she steals this magazine because yep. again she doesn't have 50 cents she has 40 cents right that's her allowance and, and normally she should be 20 cents short thank you yes. to the investigation from James Montemagno. Um, yeah, no, but I love how she handles that. Yeah. It also shows that she's, she's kind of been like a starving, you know, starving, you know, animal now for years on chess. Right. It was like, mm-hmm. she was not going to be denied, not be denied that opportunity to, uh, to get that chess magazine. And my favorite, my favorite part of going through is she's going through it. And that really gets her is that she sees the Kentucky state championship. Mm-hmm. in here. Mm-hmm. And I wrote down a bunch of things that, you know, we're going to get to the, 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 the KSC, if you will. Um, but so a few things in here that they marked down that I don't actually know if they follow that we'll get to it, but the Kentucky state championship is, it says 50 moves slash two hours. And, uh, that's what it says in the newspaper. And later on, we hear about 90 minutes is the 50 move slash two hours that is written, what is that re- relating to in a, in a chess championship, at least in this era? So 
first of all, wow, you really did. I love, I love the detail. Um, so the 50 moves in two hours is a very standard time control uh, of the era. As, mm. as time controls evolved over time, the, the even more standard one, for example, in the 80s and 90s and into the early 2000s when I was playing, and so many, so many top tournaments in the U.S. was actually 40 moves in two hours. They made it a little bit harder to reach. So, um, or sorry, actually a little bit easier to reach. Uh, you don't have to make quite as many moves in the, mm. in the length of the time. Um, and, but 50 moves in two hours means the clock starts. And whenever you make a move, you, you hit your clock and the other person's clock runs. Um, and that person has a full two hours to make a total of 50 moves. And if they reach this goal and the game is somehow still going, uh, just so you know, most games and tournaments of that time control would probably end around the three hour mark, like somewhere in the mm. middle game, mid thirties to early forties moves. It hasn't quite reached the full four hour mark where both mm. sides would be under time pressure. Most games would end there. Some games would make time pressure. And then the other games after the 50 moves in two hours, depending on the event would actually go to adjournment. And we'll talk more about that as the series goes on, um, okay. what adjournment is and why it was such a critical thing about the era. Um, and, and kind of led to some of the most emotionally, you know, kind of uplifting moments of the show. Spoiler alert later on in the show. So adjournment is a real thing. And if you had made all your moves and you reached the end of the time control and neither player lost on time, often the game would be adjourned, which means they would take a break. And sometimes a break could be like an hour if it was like a weekend tournament where you had to get a bunch of games. Sometimes a break could be the whole night, a whole day where you could mm. actually look at the position. So that that is a standard thing. And um just for context, because that's why I'm here, modern day controls, it would be 40 moves in two hours, but there would be no adjournment. At the 40th move, each side would get a little bit more time, sometimes a half hour, sometimes a full hour, and that would be all of your time you have left to finish the game. Um, because as time has gone on and we've evolved as a society, we've learned that we don't have any time for things and everything must mm. be fast, fast, fast. And so that's now right. there are no like extra days to play a chess game. It's, it, the game has to end in that setting. So if you make it to that point, we assume the end game is being played. You get a whole nother hour. That's it. You're, you're like, that's it. That's a six hour freaking game, bro. That's a long game. Yeah. But yeah, that that would be it. And you got to finish the game within that time control. Now, would this be for every single? So obviously it's like a tournament, right? Would this Are these rules, the 52 or the 42 hour mark, is that for every single game? Or is that only for like the, fi the final game that they're talking about? No, most of the time it would be every single game. It's okay. actually really rare that a time control would ever change mid mid event okay, um, gotcha. that would only be for like you know maybe some sort of special invitational where they play a rapid portion and then a long portion whatever that's that's not really an accurate kind of depiction of, of of what a tournament would be it would it would pretty much be whatever the set time control is throughout the whole weekend got it okay yeah we'll talk about a little bit when she plays her first match and the inaccuracy i think we have there but i did find another inaccuracy before we move on specifically now maybe chess review printed things wrong and i want to give chess review in 1963 this fake this fake but yet real magazine that existed in this show so here's the fascinating part about this is while they say that the entrance fee is only five dollars it's actually kind of not what you see is that the entrance fee is five dollars but there's also a fee that the Kentucky Chess Association has listed, yep. which is $6. So that actually makes an entry fee of $11. And that's important because I want to point out here, Danny, that first place gets $100 or $850 of equivalent $2020. That did the conversion in my head, by the way. <laughs> um, second place gets $50. 
third place gets $20, and then fourth place gets $10, which means they actually lost a dollar <laughs> somehow if they had to do both fees and were already and were not part of the, the KCA, right. which to me seems odd, just, just in a weird way in, in okay. general. So anyways. I, I, I think that's, believe it or not, that's actually, that's pretty standard because the reason you pay the KCA, KCF fee, that's an annual fee. So mm. you only have to pay it once, once, right? So if someone pays that, then the entry fee for the tournament is standard. And so, yes, in theory, if you, as you said, if someone was signing up for their first event, had to renew their dues or sign up and pay the entry fee, they could like, you know, have not made money. But overall, that's that's actually, I mean, the, the, the federation fees and dues for a new member is pretty standard. So I actually really like that they had that because I think it's part of a first tournament experience where I've literally, as the guy who, I mean, you know, in a former life, all I did was run local tournaments on the weekends, right? Mm-hmm, I mean, I mm-hmm. my before before chess.com, it was literally my job to I was running a business which was about teaching kids and then running tournaments and private lessons. And I cannot tell you how many times I've dealt with a newcomer who comes to play and they say, No, the entry fee was only twenty five bucks. I'm like, Yeah, but you're not a USCF member. They're mm-hmm. like, What the bleep is the USCF? I'm like, Well, that's the governing body that gives you a rating. Why do I need a rating? Well, a rating pairs you against people of similar strength. Well, how do you know how good I am? Well, because you play a few games. Once you've played 30, your rating is no longer provisional. Now you have an official rating. We know how good you are, and I know what section to put you in. Well, why does that matter? Because you got to be in the right section to play the right people and have a chance to win a prize. Okay, so what's this all about? you got to pay a USCF due, buddy. It's $25 for the year, not that much. All right, fine, I'll pay it. Like, literally, <laughs> that conversation, bro, has happened between me. I actually really, the only part of the, that initial conversation between those two guys that that I think would not be realistic is kind of how, how kind of like condescending they are a little bit in terms of how good she thinks she is. Mm -hmm. But to be fair, Beth Harmon is also like a super difficult person, right? So she's walking up with like an attitude and they're like, yo, what? Regardless of the fact that she's a girl and we're in the sixties and there's a certain level of, I mean, I would never use the word natural sexism, but here's the deal. Like no women played chess at that time. Right. So they're like these two young guys who are like, who is this girl playing here? And she thinks she's like the best. Right. And so they're like they're they're acting like jerks because there's no excuse for that. But at the same time, they're kind of taken aback. And as someone who's been in the organizer's shoes of like people showing up and having zero idea and thinking they're like the best there, there's a part of them that is like, what is going on here? Right. <laughs> and like, so that's like a whole thing that happens right there that I actually thought was, was kind of funny and realistic. And clearly they had some understanding of what a first sort of, I don't know who consulted on that, but they did a great job. <laughs> that's awesome because it's like exactly how you broke it down. You can tell that you have stated that, that thing over and over and over again to so many people over the years. And, and they sort of had it rehearsed too. Like they kind of broke it down as if you know, a lot of new people were coming into this. And because she does get the money, right? Actually, Mr. Scheibel sends her the money. Now, now, here's the thing. Technically, Mr. Scheibel would have to have sent her $11. And she right. said she only needed $5 to enter this right. thing, which, as we know, is not correct because Beth Harmon is not a member of the KCA. Of the, of the KCA. The, the KCA, yes. KCA. So, you're, so what you did was you found out sort of like a great dialogue they added actually leads to kind of a storyline error, right? And we could, we could also say maybe Mr. Scheibel sent her extra money because he knew this and she just didn't want to tell anyone else that she got extra mm-hmm. money. I mean, okay, obviously yeah. I'm completely full of it here, but you're, you're 100% right. So, so we get to the tournament. They break this down. She, no, actually, before we get to this, at this level, since you've done so many tournaments, how would this thing actually be there? Now, this is a... Um, she's in the unrated category, which means I assume you're, you're unrated, you're under 1600. You don't have a number yet. 
They say there's three people over 1,800. You know, they, they, they're telling her this, but for a normal viewer, these are just numbers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they put her in the very bottom in the unrated. There's a bunch of unrated people here. There's, I don't know, like 12 or so. There seems to be a lot of unrated people and a lot of rated individuals. How they performed this tournament, how they placed her, how they placed other people, what was that accurate? Is like, is that how if I if I would today, Danny, walk into a chess club, a chess you know tournament, is that how I'm going to be treated exactly the same? Would there is there any differences there? So, I, yeah, I'm glad you brought this up because I actually this is one of my notes about uh, the local pairing, pairing the girls like against each other, which is kind of unfair. I talked about the the sexism they had that it like comes out in kind of their tone, but it's also kind of condescending. Not, it's not even necessarily sexist. It's sort of condescending this new player who thinks that they're going to dominate. Right. But I, I would say that actually, so she demands to play in a section of higher rated players. This is yes. sort of something that would be a little bit rare. Most of the time, a new person coming would be happy with playing in the unrated division or the beginner division. It would be like unrated up to like 1200. This would be a common thing like zero to 1200. You might have 1200 to 1800. Actually you would cut it off at 1799, right? And 1199. And then the 1800 and up might be the open section to just give an example of a local tournament, right? For someone to demand to be in the top section rather than like the beginner or like the reserve, it was often called in the middle or the open is kind of rare. And so if you had someone who's brand new and someone else who also clearly demanded that because the young lady she plays must be in that same section, that's where she demanded to play it. Like it's not, it's not something that you, you would see standard these days because computers do the pairing and actually a low rated person would actually play a higher rated person first. So her first rating or sorry, her first pairing based on the Swiss system that governs chess would be like what you do in a Swiss system is you have a hundred people, you cut them in half. So one plays mm-hmm. 50, like two plays yeah. uh, like that. Right. So you cut it in half. So like that basketball. wouldn't be like exactly basketball. how it is. Right. But, but in this scenario with two local, local people wanting to play, they're both beginners. It's not the most uncommon thing, even though it is, you know, portrayed and, and, and it would be sexist to go out of your way to just pair, play, pair the two girls. It's not the most uncommon thing that a local tournament organizer if it was just literally like that, like something that they're doing and these days without any computer software, he would try to pair people by similar strength. Like that's not a totally out of the line thing to do. It's out of the line if you're pairing people by similar strength and because they're both girls. Um, but it's not out of the line, I would think, for a local term- tournament organizer to say, well, these guys are going to play with each other and they're and if they win, we'll see how we'll see how far they get. Because at that point, you're you're running it locally without computer software support that has like the Swiss master built in. And you're kind of trying you're kind of trying to give people their best game. So it was an odd thing. But they what I would say is two things. One, it's actually not that abnormal that that could happen. And two, they depict it really well that it's kind of it's still unfair. Right. It's not exactly how it should be, but it's not that odd that a tournament organizer might do that, especially in the first rounds. Um, But yeah, so it's. I think the overall point is like, even though some of those details made me be like, oh, like what's going on? Like, would I ever do that? Like if someone showed up at the last second, you know, and they demanded to play the open section, like you pair them so that they have a game. Because like, for example, sometimes you get an odd number and the choices are either this person doesn't get to play this first round because they're the bottom rated person, which is their own fault. They demanded mm-hmm. to play in the open and they're unrated. I've had that happen. So they can either sit out or I can give them a game against someone who might be of similar strength. Right. And and that gets them in the in the tournament. So those sort of things do happen all the time. 
I think the overall like environment, the the way that they they set up both the kind of the unfairness that they would pair the two girls against each other, but also sort of the realistic experience that they're both kind of new, like, and she sort of helps Beth figure out what to do in the tournament. Like that whole thing was just done super well in my, in my view. And it just creates kind of uh, it sets the tone where even though Beth is ahead of a lot of people in terms of her chess brilliance, she's so far behind people like socially, we see this theme throughout the whole show. Right. And so she doesn't really know what this whole environment is about, even though she knows she's going to kick this girl's butt. Right. She has to figure out like how to press the clock and how to do the notation and the way that they describe things is actually pretty realistic, you know? Um, the one thing that was kind of odd and unfair is they put the two girls on a table where everyone was also getting their coffee and water. Yeah. I and have that's that written kinda, down. I have that written down. It's crappy. That's real crappy. Yeah. Yeah. Not that's cool. not cool. And that definitely plays into the, you two shouldn't be here, which is the sexist part that I, I like looked at was like, yeah, that's that, that no one would ever do that, especially not in that kind of like environment or way. So anyway, I gave a, I gave a long winded answer to that, but hopefully that helps. No, in fact, I have it written down here. I have that written down, like put up against the only other woman, right? Sat next to the coffee. It had some odd um, throwback to the first episode where her bed was right next to the bathroom that right. everybody had to walk by, right? right? Everyone had to go around like, you're not really quite welcome here. That's kind of what right. they're saying in, in, a, right. in a way. And um, yeah, you see it. So, but but I think in some regards, you're right. It, it kind of helped her because the um, uh, Annette Packer is her name. Um, who she played first was very helpful, right? She explained the rules, winners play winners, losers play losers up the ranks. She does say that each player she's explaining the clock has 90 minutes, which I said earlier would be inaccurate because they would have two hours. Because you Uh, have an eye of an Eagle and that is incredible. (laughs) And I love you for that. That's so funny. Cause I like, I'm so funny. I'm not looking for things like that. And you're just like crushing this, uh, this detail. Cause the organizer would say, no, I just, I changed the time control later on, but no, you caught him. You caught him red-handed because that's Come not a thing an organizer would do. They would not change <laughs> the publicly advertised time control. That's right. Now they did not, um, they did not advertise that it's a uh, touch move, but I'm assuming our yeah, most that's pretty chess standard. tournament. Yeah. Standard. Okay. Yeah. How does that work with chess.com? Is that a rule type that you can set up touch? Move? That's so funny because we have had requests from our most, our most serious membership base, which is like, to be quite honest, is not our, largest membership base right i mean Mm -hmm. the the thing that puts us in such a you know unique and fortunate position is we have the domain name and and you know we have apps that people find easily on search so most of our membership base and even our paying membership base have never played in a chess tournament right like chess.com is their thing and then but we have i'll call it our u.s chess and fide membership base which is still like 75 to 100,000, not only very active but like rabid members right Mm. and and sometimes requests from those members are just so uniquely different to what the online experience is and one of them that we've had there's two that we get a lot one from a small user base is i want you to make the default time controls on chess.com like one hour chess or 30 Mm. minute chess and you know the default time control is 10 minute chess and like yeah. most people want to play faster than that but yeah. this this group of people will never accept for the life of them that people would rather play a 3 minute game on the subway and we're not going to like basically they don't even have the consequence of oh that would send like a million users to not playing because they'd be like i don't have time for 30 minutes and most people don't even know how to change the default time control right anyway yeah. so i digress from like product you know what it is to build like product ui and ux so we can't make those members happy 
But then we, the other request they have is I want a touch move version where like we both agree that if you even click on a piece, it's touch move. It's just so not necessary online. And in fact, if you see even the best players play, often they they fiddle with pieces, whether it's like a nervous tick or whatever. I mean, they even it's just not a necessary experience. It is something we've had requested many times. It's so funny, right? But it's not a thing you would we've ever thought to build in as like a variant type. You know that you you and your opponent can both agree ahead of time. If you touch a piece, you're locked in. It's interesting. It's not that we would never do it, but it's just it never gets high on the product roadmap because you're like, who would who would want to do that in online chess? Yeah, it, it is quite strange. Um, yeah, it'd be that is fascinating. I always think of the eighty twenty rule. That's something I always play by. That the thing that is best for eighty percent of people compared to the twenty percent of people is usually the right thing to do because right. if you want to keep the 80%. You don't want to build features for the 20% because often that 20% is smaller than that. But I always try to look at it in that regard, right? Of can we satisfy 80% because, you know, I want to grow that 80% base because it's always going to be larger than 20%. And it's hard because once you introduce more and more features, you can't take them back, which again, we're getting into product now. Right. No, I think, I think people like that part of our, that's, that's the world you and I both live in and we won't stay in it long, but no, you're right. It, It is an interesting thing. And, um, anyway, yeah. We'll digress back to the show, but that's cool. So she crushes her. So Packer destroyed, basically. Beth is the first one to turn in the paper, followed by Towns. We get our first glimpse at Towns. They've already gotten their first glimpse at each other. Um, recurring character going on. But I want to talk spoiler about this. Spoiler alert. Sorry, go ahead. Spoiler. Wah, 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 spoiler. Actually, no spoilers because, I mean, you, you could just tell. There's a there's some, yeah. something in there glimmering Yeah, they eyes. foreshadow Towns is going to be a character just by the way yeah. he's presented, right? I like him. I like him. Yeah. I like him in this in this one. How, how many know, episodes are you in now at this point? Have you have you finished it or are you still? No, I'm in only four episodes in because okay. I, I stopped when we said we were going to do this podcast. Right, so, so. you're going to be watching the fifth episode when we get to that for the first time. Correct. That's correct. I cannot wait for that episode. That's in three weeks from now. Everyone hit that subscribe button and don't go anywhere. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> so she crashes her. Now there's this top board area, which I think is fascinating. And yep. we have Beltic and Cullen sitting over here. Now they said that there was three people over 1800. Now Beltic is the top rated player here. He's a 2150. What does that actually mean? Cause I know on chess.com, I know I'm not a 2150, but if you're in this kind of state championship and you're walking in as an unrated player, um, what does it look like? What does that mean that, that Beltic is a 2150? So they, they depict this so well because they kind of say that he's he's almost a master. He's not. A, I, I'm pretty sure they say that. I don't think they portray him as a master. They say he's like he's a he's about a master. He's a state state champion. And the, and then she asked, is he a is he a grandmaster? And he said, and, oh. Yeah, no, that's right. you have to play a GM to be a GM. Right, right. All that stuff, which is a very oversimplified version of how you become a GM, but you're, but it's not wrong. That's what Town says. So, so yeah, I, I had noticed about this section too. I wanted to say that the top board section being put up with those kind of like tall things is usually they would just do it with a rope. They wouldn't actually mm. be trying to hide the top boards visually from the rest of the room, but that's not uncommon. And it is kind of cool. And I like to think that in an era like that, where I don't know, just fancy schmancy things were done that they would do that. I really like the the separation. Yeah. Um, Beltic being twenty one fifty means he's almost a master. So the master level 
is 2,200, 2,200. Um, and for comparison, for those who don't know the ratings, the best players in the world are roughly 2,800. So from master to 2,800, there's there's different titles you can earn along the way. And we'll get into that later on. But um, so he's almost a master level player. It would probably be realistic that in the 60s, most states, their best player would not be a grandmaster or an international master. Most states' best player would be somewhere around the master level player for some guy who randomly is in Kentucky for some reason, right? But the only states at this time that would have had grandmaster and we'll call it international titled level talent would be New York and California. And and so um, that's that's a pretty real depiction. Um, even, I mean, maybe Vegas, because there were some big tournaments there even then, but overall, no one would have residence there. The international players were mostly in New York and the, and the Northeast area. Um, and so that was, I thought that was well done to, to create kind of her first, her first sort of white whale, right. That she has to overcome, right. Is about a master level player almost in the state of Kentucky. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that was, was pretty, pretty fascinating. In general, would, would everybody be gathered around that board? I mean, this is the first, yeah. like, literally the first match. Would there be, that'd be okay. Yeah, it, it would be because the, um, they do depict a lot of people there, I'll say, for a Kentucky state championship. I mean, yeah. I don't know. Maybe I just missed out playing in the Arizona state championship where nobody cared. Anyway, um, it's it's a little bit extreme. But at the same time, if you're assuming an open level tournament where state championships would have the top section of reserve, like a middle group and then a beginner, you know, and if you've got 100 people there, it's very common that here's what everyone does in those rooms. As their game finishes, they go watch the best players, 100%. Mm. So it is not unrealistic at all that the top boards would have people around them watching. What is unrealistic here and is actually small spoiler alert through the rest of the show, I think for the dramatic feel of the show, they do tend to let the spectators be a little closer. And then there happens to be this like, like then they would normally be, right? And then like the dialogue that happens, like we're Beltic, like, you know, kind of yells like, Hey, like, you know, whatever he says, right. She's talking to towns and he's like, you know, would you please whatever, like that part of it is dramatic effect. I think setting up the tension between the characters, that is not realistic, not just because they would never be talking that closely to here. He would never yell. And probably the only one I want to bring up because it occurs in other episodes is probably you would never be able to even stand that close. Spectators would not be that close to one of the players there. Um, not only nowadays, but even back then. Gotcha. Yeah, and there was even a weird part too, where later on, where I think that Harmon was playing Cook, who's a fifteen twenty. That was her her next game. Um, you know, Towns, he, you know, is very similar. So when when Beltic is playing Cullen, you know, it's Cullen says, "You want to draw." Beltic says, "Hell no!" Right? Yeah, that's unrealistic. Sorry, I had to say <laughs> that. Especially, I, this was the one. We'll get into the last game with her and Beltic, and you can mm-hmm. bring up things you briefly mentioned to me before we started. This was the one note I have, and I'm going to bring up. The Beltic scene is the first and most unrealistic chess scene I can think of through the entire series. I put that right here. Now, that's a good spoiler for the rest of the show. I don't think they messed so much, and we've already called this the gold standard many times. I'm not going back on that. But I did find that scene just a little odd, like a 2150 Like, what are they trying to portray him as? Like, kind of a punk? Like, that would never happen. You would never respond to someone's draw offer with a hell no and the fact that it's one move away from resigning means that his opponent would probably also never offer a draw like you don't 
they do this in the next game that 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 uh, Beth has, and I'm sure you already made note of it. That she gets offered a draw right before yeah. she wins. Right, that's not a thing that typically happens in chess tournaments. Normally, although as I say this, honestly, I made notes of this. The more I talk about it, whenever you have tournaments that mix. Let's say when they when you mix mama with the kids, I say this a lot, right? You don't want to play with kids because you get you know what, right? When you mix the top players with beginner players, you are more likely to have odd things for several reasons. Like the beginner players don't know when to resign, but that whole ethical thing we've talked about, right? Uh, beginner players are probably more likely to not know that it's completely unethical to offer a draw in a lost position. Mm. Like it's not something you do. And also the response of offering a draw to like the top player, like even though they would never say hell no. Okay. If I, if I put my most creative hat on and give benefit of the doubt, there are some local eccentric chess players and some, you know, some abusive, you know, you know, whatever uh, Russian chess coaches I may or may not have had that might have said inappropriate things to me for acting like a kid. When I was a kid, those things did happen. I've been, I've been like yelled at for like clicking my pen. I've been Mm. yelled at for, for offering a draw actually. When I was in a lost position, holy crap, it's all coming back to me. Um, no, but the point is, I was very young. And as I say this, it's kind of funny because it would never happen. And I took exception to it, especially the belting was one move. As I talk about it, I'm realizing I'm the idiot, idiot in the room. Maybe they're that good at recognizing an open event where the top player is playing a weak player in the first round. That would, I'll put it this way. That is the only time it could happen. Someone who's completely out of the weeds with what the chess world is about against a top player, and he's that eccentric that he's going to actually act like that. It's, it is possible. Oh, my God. I'm going to eat my words. <laughs> That's funny. Um, yeah, it's really fascinating because, yeah, they say that there's like three people eight, over 1,800, and yeah, yeah, yeah Colin is, is not. He's a 1,760. Uh, so, so that could be where just literally... Beltic is thinking that, but it's funny that you say it about the clicking the pen and doing other things because we see later on this recurring pattern of these, I call, I put disrespectful down, disrespectful things that these people are doing. But anyways, I, I kind of think that Cook here in the next match versus Harmon, Cook is a 1520, uh, same thing. Uh, got mm-hmm. Queen sacrifice. Um, she, she does a queen sacrifice. He's feeling so good about it, right? He has no idea what's about to hit him. She, she basically checks him it's pretty much game over you can't see this this game being played but yeah he offers up a draw which i think again is pretty disrespectful because he knows and she knows that he knows and she knows and everybody knows what's going on here in a weird way but maybe you're correct as a 15 20 he may have seen the beltic one earlier and saying you know what this girl doesn't know anything i'm just gonna offer it up but then towns yeah. towns shakes his head no mm-hmm. that's also what? not no you can't that's- do that no, you can't. You can't ever give advice like that. And and I had the note of that 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 was also the draw. I already mentioned it earlier before my rant that those were the two examples of these like desperation draw offers, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And and the fact that you reminded me that these players were rated seventeen and fifteen hundred means I'm going back to recanting my recant. My original rant was accurate, and not my recant. Like that's just not okay. <laughs> something a fifteen hundred or seventeen hundred would do. Like the examples I was giving were like little kids who are like 1200, 1300 at most, right? At that point, a 151700 have been yelled at enough, understood the the game enough and the culture that it's seen as just pure disrespect and so you just don't do it because after you do it you go, "Oh, yeah, that's not good." I mean, there there are many other people are like, "Wow, I didn't know chess had so many unwritten rules." Believe me, I'm not even touching this is the tip of the iceberg. But this is like a clear thing that's a little odd. 
again, we could recant my recant again to say it's possible, but I think I've set the tone enough to say like, it would be very rare for something like that to be the case. Maybe against a young woman who's like clearly right. A fish out of water. She doesn't belong here. Kind of thing right here. I am recanting again. Maybe he would do that out of desperation. Right. And maybe she doesn't know what to do. So she looks at towns and he breaks a rule directly by giving advice, but does so to sort of protect this young woman who's kind of, you know, potentially going to be bullied. Right. The more I talk about it, it all makes sense again. Darn it. (laughs) Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, my goodness. It's funny because there are a lot of unwritten rules to a lot of games, right? I'm a golfer uh, as well. I used to be at least, but there's so many unwritten rules in, in the world of golf, especially on the on the green, on the on the putting green um, when you get to the end. So it's like a lot, a lot of fascinating parts here, too. Um, but, you know, I'm not actually sure how Towns is doing in this match because not far in, Towns plays Harmon and on the board kind of she's now moving up against rated players, but Towns is kind of on the bottom, even though he's sort of set up to be this kind of pretty decent player. Um, But I love this game because um, this one's really great because uh, they're super smitten by each other from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Uh, We open up, I actually have this game in the show notes, at least the opening, Uh, the Scandinavian defense is the, is the play here. I at least got through um, about seven moves and then, I, again, then they all of a sudden they just jump to the end game. Um, but my favorite part of this one is they they do jump to the end game. People are watching, and and Beth is is chasing this poor rook um, with the king, and he goes, um, he's like, you know, you're 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 why you're making him suffer, right? And, and he goes, right, right. she goes, don't worry, he doesn't have he doesn't have to suffer much longer. Right, I just right. love, I love that, that line. That is brilliant. The dialogue there is, as you can imagine, right? A little bit, whatever. But it's also like, it's an interesting thing they're trying to portray, right? I mean, there's this guy, Towns, who's been like accepting, supportive. Like she's like, she kind of likes him, right? So she is like, they kind of like have this thing where they almost want to talk to each other at the board, right? Yeah. And I've had that with friends where like you play a friend, not someone who I met in one tournament, but I've had moments with friends where like, if you were a friend, even in a top tournament, like you might say something to the guy. So I, I actually at first had a critical note here and ended up giving it a pass based on like, if you're assuming you're friends, like that's a rare thing for someone to be so friendly with someone in a first event. But if we jump past that and say they had an instant connection, like sometimes like under the breath dialogue would take place. I've had, I've had some pretty funny moments. One of the most funny. So I have to share this because I laugh every time I think about it. I was playing a game at a top tournament in Philadelphia where we were paired for some reason, the two boards next to each other were me and four of my friends, right? I was playing one, someone who's like one of my, one of my better friends. The two kids next to us were total friends and we're all playing the super serious chess games where we're going to go after each other. Right. And one of our, one of the friends is a more obnoxious one. And he makes a move where the piece kind of falls over a little bit, like not like kind of a, you know, it's disrespectful to do that. You're supposed to make a move, put it on the square, clearly hit the clock. Right. Mm-hmm. But he does it in a sloppy way and hits the clock. You would never do that. You have to set up your piece. If you do it sloppily before you hit the clock, because otherwise you're adjusting on your opponent's time while they're turned to think that's disrespectful. Right. And it's like yeah. unethical against their clock. In fact, that's one of those unwritten rules. If you do it multiple times, the tournament director will penalize you concretely. Like you can get forfeited or have time taken off your clock for doing it. 
So this happens, and my friend who's playing me reaches over to their board after the guy does it and 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 adjusts the piece. He reaches over and goes adjust and picks it up and hits the other guy's clock back for him on the other board. It was anyway. It brought like the house down because it like totally showed the, this other guy like, hey, you're being classless. Stop being a jerk, right? And anyway, so I don't know why I had to tell that story, but I had to. Though the point is, even in serious tournaments, if you're friendly with someone occasionally those kind of things can happen when you get to the world elite and you're playing, you know, Vasily Borgov and we're going to get to the, to the guy who's like, you know, the, the arch nemesis and the, like that would never happen. And to be fair, it never does. Right. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, can you talk a little bit about this opening a little bit here? Um, yeah. and just sort of this, this, this game, because I haven't, it's a very fascinating opening, uh, that happens here because, you know, we, we're in a King's pawn opening. We enter a Scandinavian defense and, it's really fascinating to me because she's just sucking up pawns, you know, along the way. Uh, and I just feel like that's, that's weird. And what is it about this opening and how this play happened here? Like what is special about this opening? What is the strategy here from white and black on the board? So first of all, I have to say what's special about this opening to start is that you're using the chess.com game explorer tool to give me links in our show notes here. Yes, and you're true. the man. <laughs> and so this actually is an opening. It's not the most common of openings, but the Scandinavian defense, which starts with D5 on move one. So for those of you who now want to do this, please click the link that James amazingly provided to follow it along. Um, and D5 is... The Scandinavian is is not maybe a, an opening that's played consistently at the highest levels because you're sacrificing a center pawn, and if you take it back with your queen, you're already losing a bunch of time. And and then further, this gambit with c6 is kind of even more rare. But the point is, it it is actually a hundred percent something that would happen. Um, it it is it is quite possible, and the position that they reach and the position that you depicted was very well done. So I, I don't even know that much needs to be answered here besides. It's not an opening you would see at the highest levels. It's exactly an opening you would see at those levels. And you did a great job because I know that you're doing all this just from watching and you're not a grandmaster level chess player. Forgive me. Right. But you're doing this basically by just watching firsthand, which is just super impressive. Yeah, it's it's quite a challenge. It's because they don't show every single move. Sometimes they skip a single move, a double move, a triple move, and you have to stitch it together. Luckily, I have played just a tiny little bit and I've watched an, an excellent international master. Um, describe chess. Describe chess for many hours on Twitch. That's you. Um, <laughs> That's you, so, spoiler alert. <laughs> spoiler alert. So she crushes towns. That's it at the end of the day. Um, and that's it. I mean, it, it's kind of crazy how short, uh, you know, how much they've had this dance in a way, right? They've sort of danced around each other, made glimpses at each other. They're talking on the board and then it's kind of over. And uh, and that's it. But this game obviously went on for a long time and I wish I could see the entirety of the play. I just think it would be it would be really cool to see, but maybe a little bit less so now that I know that it's not uh, maybe the highest of level of chess that we would be talking about in the in this era, at least, um, funnily enough. But um, anything else you want to talk about this game at all or do you want to continue on? No, I think we continue on. I think, you know, the opening, like you said, is interesting. I think I'll just say that, again, it depicts what I feel is accurately the level of chess, the openings they play. And as we know, we're going to get into this series as it goes on. I think they do a good job. I said this in our first podcast of the chess evolving along with the characters evolving both on and off the board. And I feel like, you know, you did a good job kind of bringing it up. But I think I think this is actually pretty appropriate for the level of chess that we're currently at here. 
Yeah, and immediately after this, uh, real, like you were saying, in the character development, because it's not all about chess. In fact, you know, we're going to chess a little bit later in this podcast because in the show, they got to the chess later in the in the show. But um, yeah, the real coming of, of age tale that we have here for Beth Harmon, uh, puberty strikes in the middle right. of, of uh, this, this tournament. She starts her period and Annette runs in after her just to tell her how good the game was right. and helps her out and, you know, you know, funnily enough, like she doesn't have any friends in school and yet Annette Packer, who she destroys in the first game, I just have to imagine it was just a, just ridiculous destruction. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Um, not that Annette Packer's bad in any way, just by how fast she literally beat her. But, um, you know, goes and helps her out, becomes a friend and, you know, like, like the librarian, Beth is like, cool, peace by. I'm going back, back to chess. You know what I mean? It's fascinating. But yeah, she, this is the start. And we see this later on progressing where she sort of forms a, a bond with Mrs. Wheatley around again, Mr. Wheatley, worst character, worst person ever, um, and forms a bond there. But we get Sizemore here, Sizemore V. Harmon. Uh, we don't see any of this game, by the way, to be honest yeah. with you. There's nothing there except for he loves to comb his hair, just like you I- like to click your pen. And I love the look that she gives him. Oh. So combing your hair is not a thing. I mean, that is a, I'll tell you what, that would certainly not be, you know, COVID appropriate. Okay. That is a, you're, I mean, you are, sh- you're, you're sharing your hair with the, your hands and the, that's just odd. And having played against certain people throughout my uh, chess career who may or may not have showered as regularly as I would have deemed appropriate. Um, that would not be okay with me at all. And I love that she's not happy with it either. And she clearly makes quick work of him. I think the most relevant thing to note here uh, was that she beat Sizemore and she's clearly moving toward the top boards, right? Yeah. She's now, she's now, you can kind of see Harry Beltic uh, from where she wins this game, right? Yeah. And so I think that that's kind of like Sizemore was sort of an obnoxious sort of male uh, stepping stone and his like kind of self-absorbed hygiene middle of the board, right? And her rolling her eyes, I think it was just kind of a good, you know, we have a lot of these things that kind of set the tone of what set the tone of what a woman would go through in a very male dominated environment. You talked about, you know, she has her first, you know, menstrual cycle and and gets help there from a friend, which neither one of us can talk about, but we understand it would be a you know unique experience there. And she, the way that's dealt with, she gets back to the chest. Now she's like dealing with this guy who's kind of like, I don't know, just felt very like sleazy, right? Yeah. What he's doing, right? And like, and she's just like, this is gross, right? And you can imagine. Maybe not that ex- that ex- exact experience, but having I have a lot of uh, female friends in the chess world who have described experiences where you just feel like they felt that they were not appreciated as being the only woman in the room, right? And that was one of those moments where you just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I think Shauna gave a little bit of a gag in the back of her mouth when we were watching it last night. Yeah. So we're ha- we're happy she took care of Mr. Size more quickly. She did, yeah. And you know, funnily enough, I have it written down here. These matches, and even to Baltic to some some way. The treatment here, it almost reminds me of a, a poker match where poker matches are trying to get on other people's nerves intentionally. They're trying to shake you up. But in chess, it feels just super inappropriate. Yeah. No, it it's I don't know what it is about the more one-on-one nature. I think some people argue that it's like not fun or cool in poker, but it's for some reason it's been more a part of the culture there, right? You have people who kind of have like really unique attires or way they present themselves or their habits like around a poker table, but and chess, it's just, you know, it's never been okay, that environment. I think young people learn very quickly what's okay and what's not okay in terms of distracting to your opponent because they're held to a quick standard. It's something that I, 
I learned very quickly as a young player. And, you know, when the competitive side of you sticks in as a kid and you have unethical tendencies, partly because you're young and obnoxious, partly because you want to win, sometimes you're like willing to bounce around on your opponent's time. And then when people like tell you like, hey, man, that's not okay. That's not how we do things. And you don't do things like that on your opponent's time or whatever, anything that would be distracting. I think that that's kind of a cool thing kids learn. They mature. I mean, I, it's not, I'm not endorsing any behavior where like it has been like out of bounds in terms of discipline. I say that, you know, as someone who maybe has had a few of those things, like in terms of like, it's not okay to like yell at kids or anything. But I think, I think people learn that like you're sitting across from another person in like, you know, a, a kind of an intimate environment. It really is. And chess is like the most like one-on-one kind of like, you know, uh, brain sport and there's like zero excuses when things don't go your way. It's always on you. Right. And I think, I think that there's an intimacy to like when you play someone and when you beat them or when you lose or whatever, when you draw. And I think, I think you end up learning behaviors that would be distracting and unethical to someone in ways that you wouldn't always appreciate in a group setting. Yeah. And you're right. I mean, when you're on a chess board, you know, over the board, you're very close. You know, you're, yep. you're, you're not six feet away, by the way. No. Although uh, now we have glass t- things mm. going down above the chess boards, people wearing masks and having hand sanitizer and having been checked. So over the board is slowly coming back right now, as we record this during the, the thing that none of us have ever experienced a pandemic in our lifetime. And I don't know where that goes or whether it should even be the case, but they are trying to do things just random side note to sort of bring it back. But go ahead. That is fascinating. Uh, well, before we get to the climax of this, um, Beltic V Harmon, there's a little shortcut that I'll take, which is she heads home because the, 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 the finishing, the final match is on the next day, the third day. Uh, I love that her, her mom, she she, I wrote this down, um, because, uh, she needed, she wants more pills and she goes, my tranquility needs to be refurbished. Yes. I just love that. Line. <laughs> <laughs> talking about more like, pills oh that's great that's a a fancy way to say like like uh and, and the dialogue is kind of interesting because it's it's definitely like movie dialogue because it's kind of like a way to say like mama needs her happy pills <laughs> yeah you know yeah um yeah. and that's that's sort of exactly what she says um but uh yeah it was it was interesting and obviously we learned right then that that uh, beth well we already knew because early in the episode you and i I guess you and I kind of jumped past that. We should definitely mention that the earlier part of this episode when, when, um, you know, mom isn't doing very well and mm. she sends her to the stores when she first gets reintroduced since her overdose at a very young age to the little green sure. pills. And we, we kind of skipped over that. I think, I think we have to mention that or, or our, our fans will yell at us in the comment section. Cause that is an overarching storyline throughout the entire show is Beth's, you know, addiction and, and hopeful overcoming with no spoilers to, you know, substance abuse. And I think that, I think that we have to mention that, right? Because remember, she takes the green pills in this early episode, starts playing chess in her head again. And that all happens before she goes to this first chess tournament that we've been talking about. Yeah, no, I think you're, I think you're right. It's a great point um, to bring up. And in fact, I have written down here, we actually see the bottle, funnily enough, of, it's called Zanzolum. Uh, this is not real. That's the medication okay. you see them put down. Uh, this tranquility medication, people say that it actually is maybe related to Librium, which would be similar in that error to treat anxiety. And okay. funnily enough, um, in a study of 100 people, 16% or 16 people out of 100 experienced excessive dreams taking Ooh. this medication. So there is some play on that medication, which we didn't touch on, but we're about to because funnily enough, the drugs come into play in Beltic v. Harmon. And a throwback to episode one where 
where she is the one late running down to start the match. But no, in this one, Harmon is there early with an E4 um, played and the clock ticking, which is also weird. And I needed to ask you, wouldn't Beltic have needed to start her clock for it to start? Or is it because it's the finale that the start, the clock starts immediately at a specific time? I just feel like the order of operation here has changed in some regard because Beltic is not there, right? He is actually 10 minutes late to this match. And yet Beth has already played her first move and the clock is ticking, which is counterintuitive to every other match that we've seen up until this point. Yep. The, the reason she did though, is because she's white. So I'm not trying to challenge you. I'm trying to ask specifically what you're asking again. So you're saying that the fact that we show up, the fact that she's already moved and the clock is running is different than showing up uh, where someone's clock is running, but it's their move. Right. Or, well, like I think when she plays, you know, when she plays the very first match against Annette, Annette says, don't you want to start my clock? Or you have to start my clock because Annette is white in this in mm-hmm, this round. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, but in yeah, this so regard, the, Beltic would have started her clock, but. But but he wasn't there. So, yes, actually. So what happened there is actually completely appropriate. If if a round starts in, in a tournament and you're white. You mm. literally make your own move as if your opponent started your clock and then black's clock starts to run. Got it. So, so what happened? And I, and I made note of that actually, when I was talking with Shauna that there, that's exactly what it would be like. And Beltic kind of showing up as black sort of late kind of says he needed more coffee. It's a little bit like, I don't know. I mean, a little bit, not, not quite like not taking her seriously, but I don't think he quite gets what he's in for. Yeah. Um, and he's been sort of dominating the state of Kentucky here clearly for a while right? As mm-hmm. a, as an almost 2200 player. And so I think that that's partly what it's suggestive of is he's like, he's like, all right, I've, you know, it's a foregone conclusion. I'm going to be, you know, returning state champion. I show up as black. My clock is running. I think there's like, I think they zoom in at one point. I remember like at least five, if not like 10 minutes is off the clock. Like, like he's, he hasn't, Ten. he hasn't been there for a little while. And, um, but what, what they depict in regards to her having already moved and it blacks clock, that's actually a hundred percent correct. Gotcha. Yeah, and it was 10 minutes because not only was the time down, but when he shows up, they pan back and you can tell that the the clock on the wall had been moved 10, 10 minutes over the hour. So it was 10 minutes specifically that was there. Okay. Yeah, and, exactly. Um, okay, good. And just like we see Sizemore with the combing of the hair, we see a recurring effect with um, Beltic with the yawning and the teeth. Yes. And yes. Dude had just had like three cups of coffee. That had to have been absolutely disgusting. Right. By and the way. <laughs> I don't know why they did that. Besides, I already know like later on in the series, Beltic's teeth come back again as like a, as a reoccurring theme. So I'll oh, say interesting. that. Okay. Um, which is, which is totally interesting. Um, and so I didn't notice it when I first watched the show, except other than like everyone else, Oh, he just had coffee and she's irritated with his behavior and all that stuff. But it actually comes back as like another theme later on in the, in the show. So that's all I'm going to say about that. Gotcha. Now this is a very fascinating opening. This is a Carl Khan defense opening from uh Beltic. This was also another hard one for me to follow. I got about nine moves in yep. to this match, which is all we get to see. And I think I did a pretty fair representation. Uh, this board layout is is crazy the moves that occur here um can you walk through like what is happening yeah. on this board and, and you can go below you'll see the beltic v Harmon um uh, chess explorer 
uh, and you can walk through this with us. Can you walk us through this, Danny? And, and we'll actually include we'll include a link as well to the final position, the final combination mm. that that Beth plays is a queen sacrifice for a forced mate in seven. We actually have that as so. James did an incredible job with the opening depiction. We'll break down. You could also click the link to see why it is that uh, Harry uh, that Beltic resigned when Beth ultimately plays Queen takes G six. Um, okay. So this is a Khan. You did a great job with it. It's a two knights, two knights uh, attack for white with the move knight to C3. So the Karo Khan is this move C6. Now in a later episode, we're going to see a legendary line from Benny Watts, who's a character yet to be introduced at this point. Um, although he was briefly, I think, shown on the cover of the magazine of Chess Review, if I'm not correct, in this episode. I think so. Um, so Benny Watts makes a comment about the Karakhan, which has kind of become a bit of a chess meme in the chess community since the Queen's Gambit came out. So I'm going to save that for when it happens. But pretty funny to hear about how some of the chess professionals and all the streamers have been referring to Benny Watts and his opinion of the Karakhan. So we'll come back to that. But the Karakhan is played. And by the way, it, it is a very important chess thing that that and and the care again it's where chess is reflecting the characters in the show mods because the fact that beltic would play the Karakhan and what ends up happening with his character and his relationship with beth versus how benny feels about the Karakhan and what happens with his character is is pretty actually right on in terms of the storylines they develop in the show so again gotcha. i just i know it's early and i don't want to but it's just so good and again if you're listening to this podcast and and you agree or disagree with comments or or definitely I can't wait to hear what you guys think as we move on and talk about that because the Karakhan played by Beltic, pretty funny foreshadowing later on. Bishop G4 is is a is a sharp line. So what's happening in the Karakhan is is Black is playing kind of a passive game to try to attack the light squares. It's not the Sicilian, that's what we'll say. Sicilian would be pawned to C5, two squares, attacking the dark squares in the center, mm -hmm. and not, not as passive, let's say, as the Karakhan is. Um, and what Beth does is a very aggressive line against the Karakhan. Knight F3 and Knight C3 is um, a very sharp way for white to approach the position. After Bishop G4 and H3, we get a position where white is actually already a little bit better out of the opening with the queen taking the bishop. And she gets a pretty good position where what she has, if we go to the end of this line here on move 93 that Mott's left, left, left us with, excuse me, um, this is setting the tone that white's going to be a little bit better. And she's kind of gotten her goal out of the opening. The main thing I would draw your attention to as far as her personality on the board is the bishop pair. She has the bishops on G2 and C1, meaning she has two bishops. And black only has one on G7. In a, in a typical game, if you're an attacking player, you prefer the bishop pair because eventually the game becomes open and the bishops can sort of flex. Specifically, the light squares bishop can flex because black doesn't have one on all of those light squares. And so if the board eventually becomes open, white would be better. And given that this game ultimately ends with a checkmate by the light square bishop after the queen sacrifice, again, click the other link now. Um, and uh, and follow along that combination with queen takes g6 and how it ends with bishop f5 checkmate. Again, I, I don't even know how to say this enough. Regardless of any mistakes, any critiques we're going to give this show throughout all of our podcast, James, the fact that they do stuff like that is phenomenal. And maybe I'm reading into it too much, but I don't think so. They've had too many wins and not enough misses for us to like highlight that the way they set up this game and the way it ends with the light square bishop being the dominant piece, I just, I'm in love. I'm in love with it. No, I thought it was I thought it was quite excellent. Uh, just the play here. And 
there's a there's a there's a point in time where she leaves the game, which I also wanted to ask you about, right? So we get to this point, yeah, and they they fast forward and she's thinking about it. And again, we're kind of entering the end game here because they skip so far ahead, but she leaves the table. She goes into the bathroom and then she takes some pills, right? Which is then she comes back and she's super focused. I can't imagine that that's allowed nowadays, right? Or is it? Or is like, is everything quarantined in a way where like people's obviously phones and things like this are they like, are they escorted around? I mean, I know that they're just playing in a high school, but realistically, it feels very odd that she's able to. I mean, I know I understand people got to use the bathroom, but like, you know, they run, she kind of runs away in a weird no, way. It- so it actually, it actually is, it actually is okay. Now, what it is is okay. Well, well, we, we, I could literally talk about this for a very long time because now with like cheating restrictions and like phones and purses, it's very possible that going to the bathroom in the way she did would be closely monitored and that she wouldn't have access to what she had access to. Like, let's say the pills in her purse, right? Mm. Um, it, that's very possible because there are more and more restrictions all the time to, to try to limit devices that people and anything people can access. But the way this happened in this era is not only hundred percent accurate, but even as far as like, even just 10 years ago, like there were very few restrictions on players as far as when you can get up and walk around, especially at a tournament like this, like a local state championship, which is, prestigious to people in Kentucky, but no one else gives a bleep about, right? Like there would not be somebody monitoring that. And in fact, one of the things that I think a lot of people have a big illusion about chess tournaments is that once we sit down as chess players, that we don't get up for all six hours. Like there's actually a lot of milling about. People Mm. play the opening, they get up and go get water. They say hi to a friend. They come back and sit down. They get up and go look at the top games. And sometimes you do it as a player who thinks you're going to win the tournament and because you want to have an idea of what people are playing and you're already thinking ahead, right? It's sort of a marathon, not just the sprint of the guy you're playing, right? So I think sometimes people think of like a chess tournament because of how it's portrayed. It's like, oh, we sit down and can you believe they play for six hours straight and nothing else? Like there's actually a lot of, and, and at elite events, there's like a refreshment room, right? You have like a private bathroom that all the players would share. You don't have to share the public room that the observers are using. Like there's, there's, a lot of support for players to be the best athletes they can be while they're doing something very grueling, which is a six to maybe eight hour chess game. So, so the whole process of creating an environment where people are free to play and get up and walk around and visit the bathroom pretty much at will, that's not unrealistic even nowadays with the exception being that nowadays at the top events in any event with real prize money would have a lot of restrictions in terms of what bathroom all the players are allowed to use um, like all of their devices would have had to have been checked at the door, no cell phones and possibly even no bags or anything that could kind of conceal anything. So, so actually that whole scene is, is not unrealistic at all. Um, and other than kind of the caveat I said about where we've come in terms of like cheat detection. Gotcha. That makes sense. That's fascinating. I mean, I, I just imagine like as things are played and as things progress, right, you kind of tighten it down. Um, now the link that you have here is—is is it true that this game that they're showing is actually a real game in real life? So, the I'm I'm pulling it up right now. Um, the Nez Nezmodinov. I can't say Nezmodinov. Thank you. Nezmodinov versus Kasparian. Nezmodinov is a famous player. I reference him all the time because Nezmodinov is famous for a phrase: "Only a fool would analyze blitz," mm. and I analyze blitz for a living. <laughs> So uh, Nesmodinov is a, uh, a grandmaster from this era um, who actually uh, 
became a famous trainer and he was very strong, a very famous attacking player. Uh, but again, the famous phrase is that back then you didn't play fast time control. Speed chess wasn't as popular as it is now. It was sort of growing in popularity. And Nesmitinov was kind of like an old school kind of guy. It's like it's like an old school guy saying, like, you believe they play basketball with a shot clock now? <laughs> right? How could you play with a shot clock? You don't have time to pass the ball 100 times before you shoot. So sorry, Nesmit Dinoff. Uh, don't roll over in the grave and come after me. But again, his view was long time controls, several hours, and then an adjournment with multiple days to play a single game was the only way to play chess and that only a fool would try to analyze and, and learn something from a fast chess game. But you're talking to that fool. So anyway. Um, so yes, it is 100% a game. Again, I already referenced the the beauty of of how it ends with the light score bishop, um what we what we saw in the opening and that it's a famous game. And uh and yeah, the final combination is really something special where where Beth sacrifices a queen and we do have the link to that whole last series of moves. It's fascinating because if it's a real game, you know, you kind of are like, well, these players are, you know, grandmasters or IMs or international masters at this point. And they're saying they're kind of at this point. And obviously this game took place in 1955. So it took place a lot earlier than it did here, but uh, it's a nice nod. I guess, I guess to some of the amazing players and amazing matches of the time. Yep. Yeah. And, and like we said, most, and again, I haven't found a place where I'm wrong about this yet. I believe the games they reference follow a chronological timeline in terms of when they were played in chess history. And I can't wait for, an astute observer to call me out on that in the later podcast we do. And, but I've, I haven't seen a thing where I'm wrong about that yet. In the beginning, they're showing famous Greco games and then ready tart to cower. We talked about at the beginning of the video. So for her to kind of help bring this episode to a close with this crushing victory, Nesmet Dinoff's queen sacrifice is uh, pretty awesome. And again, follows the timeline 1955 um, being later than like, let's say the ready tart to cower game we referenced already from episode one. Nice. Yeah, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful victory. And, um, it really cements, you know, in, in, I think in her mind that this is, this is it, this is what she's doing. I love when she goes home and she tells, you know, her mom that, that she won, right? Mrs. Wheelie. And, and she goes, people make money playing chess. Did you know right. that? She's like, I right. can't, I can't believe right. this. Right. Um, it's just, you know, my, I remember I used to, you know, he's the, I went to school to make video games and people are like, do they pay people to play video games? You know oh my I mean? God. Now sure. people pay to watch other people <laughs> play video games. That doesn't make any sense. It's right. really fascinating, right? Yeah. It's crazy. No, I mean, that's where we're at now with the world of esports and, and, and chess as, as we grow on Twitch and, and are kind of an evolving esport, right? I mean, it's, it's just fascinating because the the evolution of things and we're going to sound like old fuddy duddies. I already do on a regular basis with my kids. And I'm like, why would you sit there and watch somebody else play a video game? And they're like, dad, like literally, do you not get this? People watch your videos. Why do people watch you play chess? I'm like, honestly, bro, I have no idea why people watch me play chess, but, but somehow they do. So, so he's right. I'm wrong. I think, I think there's something fascinating about watching people do something that you appreciate personally because you love it, right? Whether it's a video game or chess, they're good at it, right? And so they're doing something kind of better than you can do at something you care about. So that's two points of interest. And then if their personality is interesting, they're doing all those things while also kind of engaging you. I think I obviously there's something fascinating about it or we wouldn't be here, right? And I think, um, I think, yeah. So chess is, it's true. Here we go. It's true. I, I love it. I love it because you can see Mrs. Wheatley starting to get into it. Um, Beth goes out, she gets her chess set. That's right. She also gets a new dress. I love it. 
and she picks up a new copy of MCO Modern Chess Openings Ninth Edition, which actually came out in 1957, which would be the correct version for her to get because the tenth edition did not come out until 1965. We, and we know that's true, or Mots would have called it out. Yeah, no, that's I mean, very true. You nailed it, and yeah, the moms, I, the moms like shock about people winning money at chess is not. It's not totally unrealistic to like a lot of like, you know, beginning experiences. I just made my my whole rant and tangent about people paying to watch other people play games. But yeah, no, that's it's a thing where like you start to get surprised that there's money in something that you think, oh, this was only just a hobby people play for. And and then, you know, where it goes from here now. Right. Beth has her new dress, has her new MCO. And now it's uh, it's game on because Mama Bear has some dollar signs in her eyes. Right. And, and so one thing Shauna asked, I want to get your translation of this at the end of the episode is. Is the mom so motivated because um, Mr. Wheatley has cut them off? Or is it just that it's like something to do? Like, I don't no. know if it's totally relevant. No, no it's two, twofold. Twofold. It's twofold. There's twofold to this because there's a point in time where Beth comes home and they have a moment, right? Which is Mr. Wheatley has is now basically stuck in, in, in between Butte and Denver. That is uh, where... Right. He is at in Colorado and he's not coming home basically forever. And Beth asks, you know, does that mean I have to go back? And, and they come to an agreement that, Hey, right. I won't tell type of agreement. You know what I mean? Right. And, right. and you know, she had started menstruating, as you said, and she's like, I don't know how to use these things. I don't know how to use pads. I don't know how to do this stuff. And, and Mrs. Wheatley comes over and she's like, I believe that while I may not be, you know, a wife, you know, anymore because he's kind of like left her right at this point mm -hmm. that she's like i believe that i can be a good mother and i think at this point she now is in somehow realizing that the way to become a good mother and support beth is through what beth is obviously super passionate about and wants to do for a living on the on the kind of upside for her is that Beth is going to make money and support her in, in a weird way, right? So she, I'm here. Yeah, I'm here. But no, I think overall, it's sort of this, this play where for her to be a good mother, she has to support Beth. And for Beth to be a great daughter, she's going to have to support her back in a two-way. I think that as we see in future episodes, it sort of swings the pendulum a bit, but she's at least excited about something for something in a long time. Right. She finds right. the Cincinnati match and... uh I love at the very end and Beth is just like, I'll, I'll win. Don't worry. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I'm going to win. So don't, don't worry. And Beth's confidence reigns supreme. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Well, you said it well, and now we've got a lot of uh, seeds planted, right? Beth is back in the saddle as a chess player, no longer being punished. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, she's got her, her now uh, mom and supporting manager which obviously the attachment, as you said, we know what Beth went through already with her mother as far as losing her mother. So you yeah. could imagine a character wanting and being willing to look past the faults of any character who was just going to be supportive of them. Right. I agree. I agree. And, and I think that that's, that's a good thing and not a bad thing. And, you know, but it, you know, definitely plays into where their relationship goes and all kinds of stuff. So I love it. I love it. I have to stop talking now because I'll start talking about episode three. Anything else on here on the, the, the sort of, title of this thing exchanges you know i think that there's some exchanges in in um the relationship that we just talked about right give and right. take going on there any right. key chess motivation we obviously openings make sense because you're learning opening exchanges right. here what are the exchanges that they're talking about that we saw on the board so i i think a lot of that was like her getting into 
like the chess world. Like she gets the, you know, the exchange between her and, um, sorry, the young girl that she plays in the first game. Um, I don't want to waste time on the podcast trying to remember the name, but, um, so like the exchange of her kind of teaching her how to do stuff, right. The exchanges between her and, and, and towns, basically like I, one of the things I noticed, and this was in my note was I thought exchange was a reference to the dialogue. Mm. And in some cases, the dialogue wasn't always super realistic as far as the chess goes. I was critical of it, but it was sort of necessary in regards to like developing like some of the early seeds of these relationships with Harry Beltic and with towns. Um, and even with the young lady who I can't remember her name and I feel bad, but I can, you know, spoil Annette, her to you. Annette that, Packer. That you, Annette Packer may also may not be out of the show. Um, And so, yeah, I think that some of the exchanges were just about the relationships, basically a hundred percent, like the dialogue between the chess players, um, the exchanges that take place between her and even the guys that welcome her to the tournament, right? Those, those, those young organizers who will be seen from again. Right. And then I think ultimately the exchanges, as you said, you know, between her and her mom, I mean, as far as the chess goes, we saw lots of exchanges on the board, right? But I was focused on like the exchanges was about kind of the dialogue and kind of the relationship she's developing with these different chess people. And I think you also have the exchanging of money, right? You have the exchanging of ah, money yeah. to, to get things that you want. And she is able to get money to exchange for things that she needs in her life. Yeah. Well said. Amen. Yeah. As they would say, can I get a hallelujah? Hallelujah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, man. It's awesome. I, I cannot wait for episode three. I'm glad that uh, that a few people check this thing out. They should you know, keep checking it out. And uh, I hope to God you didn't just listen to the whole episode two. And so I have to say now go watch episode one. I mean, you should have already done that. So <laughs> yes. make sure you stick around for the next episode. That is correct. Go to blunders.fm, you know, subscribe on your podcast application. If you have one person that you know that's watched the um, the Queen's Gambit, share this podcast with them. If you like this podcast, the best way to support us is to share it. Uh, if you want to go an extra mile, you can leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. But we love feedback. Let us know. We, of course, read them like we did earlier. Go to blunders.fm. All the contact information is there. You can even leave a comment on the episode specifically. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of Coffeehouse Blunders. Danny, Thank you so much for your amazing knowledge. Thank you, sir. And uh, can't wait for next week. Peace.